morning, everyone. Welcome to our Friday morning series. It's been almost a year uh, that we have been meeting with all of you here, enjoying a cup of coffee, learning about COVID-19 and uh, everything COVID around COVID-19. Uh, so the, the silver lining is we get to meet with you every week. And, and that's, to me, that's, that's great. Uh, something that I enjoy, even though it's through a Zoom lens. Uh, I know you're there and I enjoy that your questions and your engagement and involvement. And I appreciate your comments uh, letting us know that this is helpful to you. Do let us know if we need to change something. How do we modify it, alter it? Uh, we certainly uh, are able to pivot very quickly. Uh, I also want to welcome our colleagues from uh, Western Connecticut uh, that I know join us every every Friday morning. And uh, your commentary and your input is really, really important to us. So, so welcome. Um, I, I do have some, uh, uh, you know, I get every, uh, every day, uh, we get a, an update from our government relations office, uh, specifically from Emily Boucher, who's a government relations associate. And she links in with, uh, with the governor's office uh, every morning and she sends Laura Pelletier and I an email. And I'm just gonna read the three things today, which I thought would be very interesting. Uh, the first one is the governor Lamont announced uh, some changes to youth sports regulations yesterday. So cheerleading and dance will uh, be allowed to, uh, for in interstate competition beginning on March 1st. So that just tells you that we're going in the right direction. Uh, and he will also increase the number of spectators allowed at youth sporting events. Those events will now be capped at 200 people uh, and have a 25% capacity limit. So this tells us we're going in the right direction. And now this one's interesting. I don't know what to make of this, but uh, Mohegan Sun will open a COVID-19 mass vaccination site. So I guess get your shot and go gamble, I suppose that's one. <laughs> Um, and also, and that's with uh, with Yale New Haven, and the uh, and the other one is Hartford Healthcare's with the uh, with the Pequot Tribe uh, uh, Casino, also in Foxwood. So both casinos are not going to be vaccination sites. I guess that's a good way of using those massive facilities. Very very interesting. And uh, the last is that we uh, the governor is going to be announcing very shortly the next phase of vaccination. As you know, we're currently in the 65 and over, and what wait what we're all waiting for is that 1B category, which are individuals over the age of 16 that have healthcare conditions that that would deem them uh, uh, eligible for vaccination, uh, and 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 that's really important for us in pediatrics because we have many of our patients over the age of 16 that will qualify for that 1B group, and and Connecticut Children's will be ready to actually give vaccines here on site for those kids and we'll keep you keep you posted so uh, some great progress uh, moving along I uh, hope you're enjoying the the beautiful sunny weather today it was I'm sorry it wasn't right it's, it's snowy and but it's pretty it's it's you know it's winter in New England so we we appreciate it today we have Dr. Shriver of course he's back and uh, we're really really uh, 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 you know this is fantastic for us we, we have Dr. Lisa Namro who's going to give us uh, a lot of uh, of information uh, about school in this time of COVID. That almost sounds like a Garcia Marquez name of a book, which is uh, uh, cholera in the times of, of COVID or something like that. But uh, so Lisa, I'm looking forward to your presentation and John, take it off and uh, let us know what's going on in the COVID world. Thank you, Juan. Uh, and good morning, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, the rest of New England and wherever else you are today on this snowy Friday uh, here. Um, and there's a lot going on in COVID right now. A lot of good news, um, some challenges, uh, and the usual weird stuff going on in the United States right now. So uh, let's get moving. First slide, please, and we'll, we'll get going. And again, um, by the way, thank you uh, through the week. Um, I've got a lot of suggestions and comments. These are very helpful. And I do appreciate all the input. It helps guide my talk every week. 
the pandemic marathons in its final few miles, the toughest miles um, if you run races and the race to vaccinate is on. We are gonna get to the finish line, but I think it's gonna be one of those finish lines where people trickle through, but the race will be done um, at some point and uh, we will get there. But uh, it's probably not gonna be three people as you see here going through the ribbon and it's all done. I think it's gonna be one of those races where everyone has to trickle through the finish line over time. Next. Now, um, we in the United States are moving into be a good place. I, I, I haven't been able to say this for months, really since the summer. And uh, we have a very steep decline in new cases still. Um, I think you'll see some of that re really represents behavior change in some of the states that were hurt uh, strongly. Um, maybe we're in denial, didn't do the public health measures they needed to do a lot of deaths and they, they've really tightened up and the Dakotas are, are two of those states and I'll show you some of their vaccine initiative uh, data. So um, we're in a good place. Now, um, obviously uh, there's a lot of potential bumps in this. It could be new variants that are more contagious. It could be people all hop on an airplane and don't take things seriously and we're not at herd immunity yet. There are lots of potential bumps in the road but we've shown now that we can do this um, and uh, and it, it's also clear that um, this is the ideal time to immunize uh, when you're 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 breaking the back of the curve. It's the ideal time to get to herd immunity. Next, and uh, ditto. Hospitalizations are way down, about fifty percent of what they were or more. Now that's still a lot of people in the hospital from COVID, but we have capacity nationally. It's very important. Um, for our public health to have that capacity and we're in a much better place than we were literally four weeks ago. So we, we are moving in the right direction. Very good news to the United States. Next. Now um, the deaths lag, you know, um, uh, as we've mentioned before, because people stay in the hospital for weeks and, and then can pass away from COVID and, and um, the, the deaths lag, the new cases, but the deaths are going down. It's clear now, it's not a, a blip. Um, we've got about a 50% uh, reduction in deaths. Now that's still 2000 deaths a day from COVID related illnesses. It's not um, trivial. And uh, there's nobody running down to the morgues faking these death certificates. The way I showed you last week, a billboard saying the doctors are faking the death certificates. I mean, really? So that's not happening. And we still have 2000 deaths a day, but the good news is it's, it's really decreasing fast. And if we can immunize the vulnerable populations, this is gonna fall even faster. So again, we're, we're heading to be at a good place if we can take advantage of it. Next. This is Connecticut now, it's a, few, a couple of days old, um, but uh, this is where Connecticut is currently. Uh, we're much better place than we were previously. Um, we're in a much better place. Um, you can see that uh, we're not at 10 yet, but you may remember last week we had a, a lot of dark orange that's really only in the New Haven area now. And so Connecticut's community spread is slowing. It's not where we need it to be. It's still pretty robust and everyone needs to understand that when you go out in public, there's a lot of community spread, but it's way down from what it was previously. If we can keep this trajectory going, we could be back to the summer numbers, which were mostly below 10 in every county. 10 new cases per 100,000. Next, please. And this shows graphically the decline in new cases in Connecticut, daily reported. 
And uh, it's down in the hundreds now from the thousands. And again, we're heading to a good place. Now the governor is a balancing act to get schools going and the economy going again, yet not have another surge. And, and I think one of the things that has pleased me watching Connecticut perform and frankly, watching my state not perform well with this, it's Massachusetts, is that the immunizations have rolled out aggressively and in general, fairly um, uh, efficiently. And so what that's allowed is the vulnerable population, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the nursing homes are immunized now. And so if we can uh, really keep this going down to summer levels, our death rate's gonna go back down to almost zero because the vulnerable will be protected. So I think, again, I see the balancing act the governor's trying to do. It's, it's hard because we have to tell our constituents and our families to please be very careful. Still, there's a lot of community spread, but in general, the news is quite strong for Connecticut right now with our immunization levels going up. And I'll show you some of those data. Next. Now the wild card is the spread of more contagious variants. Now this is, I pulled this from the CDC 48 hours ago. It's already out of date. So the B117 variant you can see up top, that's the UK one that's more contagious, but the vaccines seem to be fine to cover this. It's in every state and you know, a thousand cases is wild underreporting. So we know it's in every state. It's probably gonna be the dominant strain in three weeks. And you know, if it holds true as held true in the UK, we may get a blip from that because it spreads easier. And the race is to immunize as many vulnerable people as possible. And then maybe that blip isn't really gonna affect mortality. So, so um, but it's everywhere in the, in the country. Now, the B1351 is the South African strain. That doesn't seem to be um, uh, particularly more contagious the way the UK strain is, but it looks like as I've shown you in the last few weeks, the neutralizing antibody made by immunization is about a tenfold re reduced against this strain. It's still, there's still neutralizing antibody. It's probably, the vaccine will probably be protective uh, against severe illness, but it's not as good against uh, as against the native strain and against the UK variant. So we're gonna have to watch that very closely. And again, this is a wild underestimate of where the South African strain is. I mean, it's in, it's in 10 states, which means it's probably in all the states. We just don't do that much surveillance. So uh, again, we have to watch this very closely and it will be a wild card. And again, the impetus is immunize, 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 and then we can put a cap on the spread of any of the mutations. The P1 is the Brazilian strain. So far, there's not much in the United States. Next. And the race is on, as I've mentioned. Um, you can go to the next, please. Uh, can we immunize our population and get on top of this? And here's the data from the CDC from the 16th. And 71 million doses have been delivered out to the states and 55 million given. That's pretty good. You know, it's a big improvement. Uh, you'd like to have 100 million given, but it's not yet. Um, and uh, so we are moving to a place, if we can continue the trajectory of a couple million doses a day, where we might by the summer be in a, a much more controlled epidemic situation. So I'm optimistic. Um, there are a lot of blips in this road, certainly in my state there is currently, but in general, the United States is beginning to get on top of getting these vaccines delivered aggressively to the right populations as fast as you can. Now, there are 50 different ways we're doing this. Um, it's not what I would have chosen, um, but 
I would have chosen, you know, watch the states, figure out who's doing it best, and maybe you roll that out across the whole country, but it's not what we do here. So um, we have some states that are still lagging, and I'll show you some of those data. But good news, you know, over 50 million doses administered. We have 350 million people. We're getting there. Next. And these are the national immunization rates. Now, this is getting better. You remember they were just like Connecticut and West Virginia were the only two good ones a week or so ago. Good being 12% of the population had got at least one dose. And that's where Connecticut is right now. It's about 12 or 13%, maybe more uh, as of this week. And you'll see there's some other states getting there. And the Dakotas, um, I think, deserve special mention because, as you know, they had terrible outbreak. Uh, among the worst per 100,000 in the country, a lot of deaths. And that rattled a lot of the communities where everybody knew somebody had passed away. And they're taking immunization seriously, which is a good thing. A ditto in New Mexico, um, which has a high Latino population, and surprisingly in Wyoming. So um, we are beginning to get some traction in some states where perhaps the public health measures were not paid attention to the way they could have been and a real traction on immunization. Now we also have uh, a lot of laggards and you can see um, a lot of the Southeast um, is not on top of immunizing yet and, and it's gonna need to get better. So in New England, um, again, they all need to be like Connecticut. Everybody needs to be at 12, 13, 14% and we are not. So we have work to do, but there's a glimmer that some of the states are starting to get it. Next. And, and here's the best immunization performance in the United States. Again, Alaska among states, Samoa is the best. Alaska among states, uh, almost 20% of people have gotten at least one shot. And, and you know, uh, kudos to the state government up there. And they're focusing on Native American and high uh, vulnerability populations doing a good job. West Virginia, same thing. And then Connecticut's in the top group, 13%, probably 14% today. And New Mexico and Connecticut up there and the Dakotas. Like who would have thought, right? Uh, a few weeks ago, I was showing how desperate the outbreaks were there. They're really trying hard to immunize. So this is the good news. Next. And here are the challenges. Now, Iowa has moved up. It's no longer dead last. Um, why Rhode Island, which has a, a, a awful community spread, is challenged to immunize, I do not know. I, I don't understand it, but it's one of the worst in the United States, I guess the worst state currently. And Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, and um, some of the far west, Idaho and Utah. So we have some states struggling uh, to break 10% of having gotten one shot. We're gonna need to do better than this. And so this is where I would focus, if I were the CDC, I'd try to be focusing on helping understand what we can do to get these states to get their immunization rates higher. Next. Now, one really important thing, um, and, I, and I think all of us need to figure out wherever we are located in the country, how to solve this problem. We are lagging in immunizing our minority populations. These are new CDC data from 38 million people who have got one or more doses. And you know, they're using the data you pull in when you get immunized in, in terms of race. And race and ethnicity were available for 21 million of the 38 million. So that's the data they had. And you can see um, the majority went to white, non-Hispanic, and Latino and African-American and um, other minorities are lagging in, in um, the percent of those who were immunized. So only 9% of total immunizations went to Latino and 6% to African-American. These are particularly hard hit populations by COVID. 
And this is gonna require work. It's very important that we get into these communities, build trust, um, share honestly the data and, and, and try to create connections so that we can improve immunization rates in our minority populations because that will, we will not get to herd immunity. We will not get our death rates under control. We will not get control of this pandemic without addressing the concerns of this community in terms of immunization. So uh, I wanted to share these data and certainly that seed for thought for all of us wherever we live in New England and the rest of the country. Next. Now, other countries are struggling. I, I think this is always great. We, we've become very introverted as a country. It used to be, I've said this before in the old days, anyone who remembers, you'd watch Walter Cronkite, at least 10, 10 minutes of the 30 minutes was like the rest of the world, right? And um, now, you know, you might get one, you know, it's 30 minutes of, of you know, the United States, me, 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 me. Well, there's a whole world out there. And in, in fact, we're not doing so poorly anymore in the rest of the world comparison. Germany is struggling with immunizations. They had a huge peak, just like we did in January with a lot of deaths for Germany. And again, you know, they have about hundred million people and um, they have been unable to get their arms around getting their immunizations up. It was only three or 4% last week. And so um, we're doing a lot better than this. So uh, it's not, we're not alone in being challenged by both new peaks in the winter and getting the immunization rates up and getting herd immunity. So I just wanted everyone to see that the United States is not dead last in the world here for this now. We are making strides. Next. Who's best in the world for immunization? Well, who knew? The United Arab Emirates and Israel lead the world in immunizations. Both governments have immunized 25% of their populations. Quite remarkable. Now, preliminary data from Israel that's using the Pfizer vaccine, it's in the field now, right? They had a big outbreak and he's got Pfizer out there. It's not a controlled clinical trial, it's field work. It's 93% efficacy to prevent symptomatic COVID-19 after two doses, including the elderly in Israel. And that, those are good data because they've got 25% of the population immunized. So the Pfizer and the mRNA vaccines are working in the field quite strongly, uh, very good news. And again, um, I think these are data that are real because they're in the, they were in the middle of a, a very big outbreak in Israel and they're having big positive effect. Next. So we need to do it. And um, you know, I've gotten, I get some pushback actually um, at the end of each session about people still nervous about immunizations, but I think the data are really good. Uh, getting the disease is not really good, no matter what age you are. We have no idea in the long-term effects. And now we've given the RNA vaccines in particular to millions of people, and they seem to be quite protective and uh, really having mostly local reactions and uh, one day of flu-like symptoms as side effects. So I think this needs to be the mantra. And um, it doesn't mean that we force people, but it means that we try to tell them the facts transparently and show them the outcomes of native infection and that vaccination is a far more preferable outcome. Next. Now there, there's a lot of new data coming out uh, about COVID. So I'm gonna run through some things quickly. Risk factors for severe COVID in children. Next, this came out a couple of weeks ago. Latino, um, disproportionate number of severe COVID children in the United States. Extremes of age, very young and over 20, late adolescents. Comorbidities, we know. Elevated C-reactive protein. If you have a C-reactive protein and you have COVID, it's 10 to 17 up there. 
the likelihood of getting severely ill is very strong. And that, this to me was one of the more uh, important ones because maybe that's a screen we can use on kids with mild COVID to predict severity if, that they're gonna end up in the ICU. So uh, it was retrospective, it's a cohort study, 454 patients, it's not prospective, but I think the data are useful. Next. Now there's a new antiviral that's I think very exciting, but this paper also has some very scary stuff in it. It came out in Nature uh, 9th of February, next. And there's a new EIDD 2801. Now, first I'm gonna show you, they, they've developed a very clever model. They have human lung tissue implanted in immunodeficient mice. So the mice have totally human lung tissue sitting there in their, in their uh, backs and the lungs are healthy, human pieces of lung. And they found, and this is scary because they took other bat coronaviruses. Now you have to hope they have really good containment, right? The last thing we need is another bat coronavirus floating around, but they have SARS and the old uh, Middle Eastern respiratory virus and then COVID-2, which is the blue, but WIV-1 and SHC-014 are other bat coronaviruses and they are happy to infect human lung tissue, no problem. So we're gonna need to be very careful um, there are other coronaviruses out there that are, that are cousins of SARS-2 in bats that can infect human lungs. I found this very scary. Next. But what's not scary, what was very exciting is that this new antiviral is broad spectrum. It's oral EIDD2801. And you can see the viral titers are markedly reduced across the range. And more importantly, the lung tissue on the top is what happens when you infect the lungs with the coronavirus, full of pustular tissue, inflammatory cells. The bottom is with the antiviral, which almost entirely prevented the inflammation. So again, I think this is going to be better than remdesivir and, and we have good antivirals on the pipeline. So stay tuned and keep watching on this. I think it's going to be exciting. Next. Um, we are probably going to have annual immunizations with a tuned up uh, vaccine. Um, Pfizer and Moderna are both working on what will probably be a third shot. I'll predict that we're going to be doing this next year. Um, but the good news is with the technologies available, we're going to be able to do this. It's not going to be particularly complicated. So next. And um, more importantly, remember all these mutations? This is a paper that showed focus on the middle, the green middle. And when you have um, color, it means that your antibodies are working. And when it's black, it means that the antibodies could not bind. So the green line shows mutations that are deletions. These are amino acids that are just not there anymore and the antibodies can't bind. So it's a different kind of mutation and a couple of the ones circulating have these mutations of deletions. So again, this is driving us, in my opinion, I think we'll probably end up having an annual immunization for SARS-CoV-2 that picks up on these things and modifies the vaccine accordingly. This is from Pittsburgh a week ago. Next. And there continues to be confusion and hostility to the pandemic in some of the media. Now I, I cruise various media outlets, um, Breitbart News uh, yesterday, there was not a single story on COVID, none, zero. And a flashing bar was an advertisement that had a picture of COVID that kept saying enough already. So it was very interesting. You know, I, I don't know what, I didn't bother to look and see what company was saying that, 
But um, that was Breitbart News, which is watched by millions of people, not a single story. Now, Infowars, which is, tends to be more openly manipulative, had a fascinating story showing that the CEO of Facebook a year ago said that he thought that this RNA vaccine could modify RNA and DNA. And it, it's, it's a video. But then he came out a few months later saying, I was wrong. I get it. I understand the technology now. It doesn't do that. I'm sorry I said that. He, he took it back. But they make a big deal out of it, basically saying it's a conspiracy because Zuckerberg knew really early that this was a bad vaccine. So it's just remarkable what's out there. And it's going to be critical that we continue to be consistent with families, share the facts, um, and also share uh, you know, why getting the disease is not a great idea. So, But be aware, this is stuff that some of our people are watching, some of our families are watching. It's very confusing and, and manipulative. Next. So we are in a much better place. There's a robust decline in new USA cases that continues. It's exciting, it's real. The immunizations with two um, of these mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer have reached more than 2 million a day this week. The efficacy is terrific. Uh, you can see from the Israeli field trial that it's working in real time. We have mutant variants spreading in the US, however, these are gonna give an unknown impact on community spread. So we're gonna to need to move even quicker to immunize. Connecticut is performing well in the immunization race. However, the weird, America continues to battle itself instead of unifying in the vaccine race to normalcy. It's just where we are as a country right now. So thank you for your attention. I'm really looking forward to Lisa's talk and we'll get back to you for questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Uh, always a, a great presentation, lots of great information and a very optimistic <clears throat> view today. I really appreciate it. And, and now we're going to pass it on to Dr. Namra, who's, uh, as uh, all of you know, Lisa, um, and uh, I think at least 99% of you should. Uh, Lisa's an associate uh, professor in both psychiatry and pediatrics at, at, at the university and is truly uh, one of the country's experts in, in uh, pediatric psychiatry. Uh, so, Lisa, I'm going to pass it on to you to talk about school in this time of COVID. Lisa? Good morning, everybody. You can hear me okay? <clears throat> yes? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, thank you, Juan, for the introduction and for recognizing my uh, literary uh, reference there in school in the time of COVID, um, and to Ken Spiegelman for inviting me to do this. So, I'm really honored. Um, I do want to present today a, um, a framework for obtaining school history that really has shifted in this time of COVID. Um, I am now doing a lot of school consultations where I'm heading out to schools and, and seeing kids who are struggling. Um, and, uh, and I'm learning a lot, first of all, about the impact of school closures and the variability of the school closures, um, but also where my history has to start, which is very different uh, than how we used to obtain it. Um, and uh, so that's what I wanted to do today. I really don't want this to be yet another burden for our wonderful primary care docs of one more thing that they have to do or screen for. It's really to just provide um, a framework that might be more vectored to the kind of information that we wanna learn about. Um, and I also wanna remind people at the end of a tool that we developed a couple years ago at Connecticut Children's, Drs. Uh, Wiley and Ruben and I um, on screening for anxiety and depression. Um, it's part of the CLASP uh, project. Um, and I wanna remind you all how to get that um, 
Liz just did. Thanks, Liz. Um, because I think it, it's a really helpful tool. And I think it just, we, I want to make sure that you all have that. So um, a couple things uh, to remember about, uh, about this period of time, you know, one is that all kids went remote last March. That means for most kids, even if school opened up in September, they have been out of school for six months. And we can all remember the time where if we screened a kid for school and school attendance, missing school for even more than 10 days was a really big deal. Um, and then that uh, even, even schools that opened in September and many delayed opening, they're open two days a week, three days a week. And then to make things even more complicated, uh, they close, they open, they close, they open. And that's town by town. So every kid has had a different school experience. So Liz, if you could go to the next slide. Um, so these are my objectives, to enhance school taking given the impact of COVID, um, to consider what kind of learning vulnerabilities um, are associated uh, with remote learning, like which kids are most at risk, um, and also then to assess the mental health risk associated with remote learning. And overall, the good news is Connecticut has been you know, has been trying to be open. That's really very different than many other states. So go Connecticut. Uh, less, next slide, Liz. Um, okay, so this is the elements of uh, the COVID impact on, on school history. So again, remember, all schools closed uh, in March. And for many schools, they didn't know Zoom yet. They didn't even know really how to connect to kids. So schooling itself, even if it restarted remote probably wasn't until April for many schools. So the way I've been looking at kids right now, and again, most kids I'm seeing are significantly struggling enough that the school has asked me to come and take a look at them. So I am starting my school history last September, not this past September, as we often do, you know, how is the transition back to school and blah, blah, blah. Now it's really, let's go back to a time kind of our usual pediatric history. Let's go back to the usual state of good health and then what? So last September, 2019, life was pre-COVID. Kids were going to school. What was happening then? How was this child doing when school was school? Um, and then zoom in uh, to coin Zoom um, on March, 2020. And really this is where things get very specific by town. Um, around March 23rd, school schools shut down, and it wasn't like March 24th, schools, you know, had Zoom platforms and Google platforms and were able to open back up again. So what happened, and what was what was your child doing, and how was you know how was that? Um, and then uh, go go forward, you know, figure out first, um, you know, how did they do during that period? Um, what, what was going on, what happened, how was the family doing, and then how did things go over the summer, and then how did things go with the transition in September, and again, this is where towns are different. Some, some towns opened two days a week, shut down three, some are one week and one week, um, and then many schools, like for instance, I just did a consult in poor Bristol, Connecticut, and they have had to shut open, shut open probably about four times. Um, so it's been, it's been a really different experience. And then um, somewhere around October or November, it was decided that if kids were under special education and on an IEP, that they were the kids most at risk and that they needed to be in school as much as possible. So many of those kids were allowed to go to four days a week rather than only two. 
but this is where you want to just try to ask some of those questions to figure out how for your patient that's in front of you what their school experience has been and then of course you got to assess the impact um, on the the family as as well so the patient and the family next slide so these are kind of the screening questions to ask um, you know first of all many of you will know your students and know you know who has already had trouble with executive functioning with attention and focus so obviously those kids are the most over the kids can't sit still um, of course the frustrating thing for families i'm sure is that many of these kids can sit still in front of a screen when it's really high stimulation and they're doing video gaming and stuff but when it comes to school, the attentional issues really play a significant role. Um, and you know, what's their level of participation? Some kids are opening up that computer every morning and getting right to it, and some kids just can't do that. And you know, what's their frustration tolerance been? And then, of course, in association, you know, the mood changes, the anxiety, the refusal, um, sleep. It's key because parents are exhausted, they're going to sleep and kids are often saying, whoa, this is now the time I can do whatever I want. Um, and so screen use is obviously increased and substance use, which is uh, a really big concern. Next slide. Um, so, but in the end, you wanna make sure that the family is able to maintain priorities. Next section, uh, next slide. Um, right, so mental health really has become more of a priority than getting all your work done and making sure to maintain grades. Um, that really most kids do best if there's structure and routine, and that's what schools you know, have been able to provide. Um, really try to have families stay engaged with each other um, um, and to maintain a sense of competency. That's what we want our kids to try to be able to do. Productivity is important, but can't be seen as the, the most important. Maintenance of sleep-wake cycles is probably among the most important. Um, nutrition, walks, exercise, you know, obviously sunlight. Yay, it is, the days are getting longer. Um, uh, vitamin D levels hopefully are coming back up. Um, but the most important thing is that this whole experience doesn't destroy family relationships. Next slide. Um, really try not to focus on the straight A's um, or completion of all academic work, particularly if that means that anxiety becomes overwhelming um, and the parents feel that they have to replace the school team, um, they don't have to do that. Next slide. Um, so who, who is at risk? You know, we're obviously really worried about kids who have attentional issues, organizational issues, um, schools with already neurodevelopmental disabilities, learning disabilities, autism spectrum, um, another interesting thing that's emerged in for kids in autism spectrum is uh, many of them um, are uh, additionally burdened by the whole mask thing. So even when they're at school, when everyone's wearing masks and there's even less information that they can get from somebody's face. Um, so many kids with autism or other sort of social pragmatic vulnerabilities are really struggling with who's their friend and who's not particularly around schools. So they got back to school in September, let's say October, there's a new school team and they can't tell if that new school team is friendly, not friendly, helpful, not fr because half of the face is covered up. So that's been a really, uh, a, a, another additional burden, uh, particularly for kids who, who need to see face. Um, 
many of us need to see face. So, so it's, it's, it's just an additional thing to be thinking about. Um, and then of course, students with already identified mood and anxiety disorders um, and students with screen addiction. So many kids are shutting off their video, even if they're on. Um, and so they get credit for attendance in the classroom, but then they're on another screen doing their thing. Um, many teachers have really struggled with how to tell kids that they have to turn on the video um, rather than keep the video off, but uh, yet another burden. Um, so the lowest risk kids, and there's not that many, but um, are the highly motivated. So good organizational skills um, really help during this time. Um, and then occasionally, and I have seen a couple of these students, who really were struggling with social vulnerabilities, really being impacted negatively by the peers um, and actually being home for them and being out of the negative influence of peers, particularly middle school kind of stuff. Um, they, they uh, at least when it comes to uh, self-injury and um, suicide, uh, suicidal ideation, there are some kids who are doing slightly better being at home, but not many. Next slide. So what's a pediatrician to do? You guys are so awesome. You know, I, I value the work that you do and you guys are uh, among my closest friends as well. So, um, but just try to obtain a, a COVID specific school history because it's, you know, it's really different than, uh, than what it's been before and make it town specific because it, it, that's also different. Um, yesterday, I, I, I saw a young girl um, who re, whose school was so worried about her suicide risk and her cutting and remarkably um, once school got back to four days a week, uh, which is only since January 19th, um, she's been doing remarkably better. So it, it, it is amazing how really much all of us uh, benefit from structure, routine, consistency. Um, you know, check, the check your patient's mental health vital signs. Um, don't, don't hesitate to reach out to school, schools are, burden, but they're much better. The special ed system is back intact. Um, when kids are on IEPs, they do get to go to school more often than kids not on IEPs. There has been a flooding because of that, but if that's what your, your patient needs, um, push for it. Um, but remind parents that if they do their children's work for them, then the school will never know that it's their child who's struggling. Um, but just don't underestimate how much just your support, concern, you can do this, to coin John's words, this is a marathon, uh, we can get through this, um, can really make a difference for families, even if you can't make this all better. Uh, next slide. Um, so resources, as you guys know, you've gone over this a million times, but um, just to do it one more time, there is access mental health, phone call away, both consultation with the child psychiatrist, but also case management. That is the second task of the access mental health team is to help a family find resources. Um, Programs, intensive outpatient programs are opening up to in-person work. So that's that's really good. Um, Two-on-one mobile crisis, obviously ED, as you heard from Steve Rogers last week, if an acute crisis. And then um, again, Liz sent this around um, and it is posted, but I did want to remind you guys about the anxiety and depression pathway that we developed um, that walks you through uh, how to screen for anxiety and depression, what to do if you have a positive screen, what kids might be safe enough to treat in primary care, and what kids uh, should, should be referred. So Liz, I think a little picture of that's on the next slide. Um, we went over this a couple years ago, but I'd always be happy to do it again. Um, but this is what it looks like. Um, next slide. And this is how you access it. And again, I won't 
go through it because I think Liz sent it around, but um, you can find this on the Connecticut Children's Intranet. You do have to sign up uh, or sign in. Uh, and then this, that's where you get all the CLASP co-management guidelines. So there's really a wealth of information in there, but um, this anxiety and depression uh, uh, pathway, which we developed based on um, the GLAD PC, which was sponsored by the American Academy of Pediatrics, but was very dense, very detailed, and uh, I, I thought a huge burden, and uh, we simplified it. So um, next slide. Um, again, th uh, this is how you access it, and then just click on the anxiety and depression, um, and there's contact information and contact Michelle or Karen Rubin if you can't get in. Uh, but again, Liz sent that around to all of you. So it is 841. John told me to talk fast. Um, sorry if that was way too fast, but I know that there'll be lots of questions and concerns. Um, so I will turn it over. Thank you, uh, Lisa. Um, love the slides uh, uh, with a sense of, of optimism. We, have a, we do have a lot of questions here. The, uh, we'll begin with, with John. Uh, John, can you expand on the Brazilian strain transmissibility vaccine coverage or not? It's a great question. It's, it's the P1 strain, and um, we know less about it than we know about the UK and the South African strain. But we do know it, in one province of Brazil seemed to have a lot of this, and some of the people were getting reinfected with this strain. However, when you look at the strain, it's got the same mutation as the UK strain, and one of the same mutations is the South African strain. And um, already we've shown that the vaccines will probably work against both of those strains. So Moderna and Pfizer, I can't find the data. I don't think they've specifically tested against the P1 Brazilian strain, but knowing the mutations, I would be fairly confident that the vaccines would have some activity against the strain. So, you know, um, more, more will come. And when I, when more comes, I'll present it to you guys. But right now it's, it's the least understood of the various mutants out there. Lisa, this is a great comment from one of our pediatricians. I tell my patients that you need to be in school in your head, not just online. You get up at the same time as going to school, AM hygiene, eat breakfast, dress oh. for school, and then log on sort of a routine. What do you think of that comment? That's very that good. Is perfect. Gosh, I have to add that to my slide. Who said that? Can I steal it? Arthur. That, that's that's Arthur Blummer. Yes. Arthur. Oh, perfect, Dr. Blummer. Yes, um, absolutely perfect. In fact, I, um, I have one uh, child in college still, and her college advisor, when they all went remote, said that's what he was doing, and that he 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 was getting up every day, no matter what, still having breakfast, getting dressed. Actually, the Wall Street Journal just came out with a study that said that. Um, if you got up and got dressed in work clothes, you were more productive. So, so the Wall Street Journal is saying to do what you did, John, still put on your tie, put on, put on your dress for success. Um, that is absolutely, absolutely perfect. And if you do that, even if work productivity is still at 50%, that is absolutely what we all need. Thank you. Um... John, when you talk about percentage of each state's population has received the vaccine, is that based on state's total population, including children, or only those over the age of 16 and 18? I believe it's the state total population. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's a good point, but I believe it's the state total populations. Yeah, the numbers also look at eligible population vaccinated, so that can be, uh, that can also be dissected. Connecticut is actually doing very well in that from that perspective as well so it's so a good good job for the state 
Um, Lisa, uh, uh, one, you know, the question is, um, oh, I lost it. Yeah. Uh, what's the location of the fountain of youth? <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a location or what is your, your recipe for fountain youth, I guess. My recipe? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, does that mean I look young? Is that actually well, you do. No, that, that you do, but, uh, but I think that specifically, yeah, what is the location of the Fountain of Youth from Danielle Warren? So there you go. Oh, gosh, yes. I'm not um, here in Hartford, Connecticut, actually. That's why we all stay. <laughs> um, also for you, um, for those children that have been able to attend in-person learning, are you finding increasing numbers of anxiety, depression in, in, in that population? No, no. It's, it's um, again, as we said, for the most part, what we all need is structure, routine, and consistency. Um, the young student that I saw yesterday um, who also was struggling, her biggest struggle it was the unpredictability week to week of whether school is going to be open or not. Um, and again, for her, she's not that focused on A's and B's. Uh, this young girl, she's got learning vulnerabilities, probably autism. Um, she just wanted to know, what does my life look like every day? And, you know, wondering on a Sunday night if schools open this week or close this week, and then for how long um, uh, is, is really taxing to so many kids. So for the most part, being at school, and, and let me just say, the teachers of Connecticut, if any of you are listening, um, they, they are not vaccinated for the most part. They are not vaccinated, John. I don't know if they're really, if, if it's open to them yet, but those teachers in Connecticut were at school at when school opened. Teachers in Connecticut didn't push back not to open schools. Um, it is remarkable what the teachers of Connecticut have done. Uh, I just can't, can't say enough about what heroes they are. I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, really terrific, terrific people that have, you know, they put themselves on the front lines and they just go and do it. Uh, so uh, fantastic. I, I, yes, I will also say, let me just, you know, so so as many of you know, many kids are, you know, with paraprofessional support, um, which means an adult is literally within arm's length of them. So, John, they couldn't do six six feet, particularly at many, like at, at our former clinical day program, Solterra. Th those teachers have to be in proximity of all of these kids to maintain their safety and they were and they did and i mean there's no question there's no question and i want would agree with this i mean i think teachers should be among the groups that get immunized the very next that we can yeah. because we need to plan for september and if people are comfortable that they're immunized they're going to be able to be better teachers also so i couldn't agree more one in the in the kudos nationally to teachers who've taken this on through all of this and then also we need to push DPH to make sure that they are a high priority group as we roll out immunizations. I could not agree more. Yeah, thanks. Um, John, tell, <clears throat> talk to us about vaccine uh, hesitancy in, the, in, in, in our uh, minorities, uh, minority populations. What, what comments on, on why that occurs? Is, is it true? Is it not true? Well, I think one, I want, there are a couple of questions on this. One I want to make, the CDC data should are just sort of data, right? This is the percents of the total given, it doesn't tell you why. And I, I just, we need to be clear on that. Those data just show that we're, we have mostly white people been immunized so far. And it's, if you look at the population percents, the um, African-American and Hispanics are un, underrepresented in those who got vaccinated based on their population percents. That's all it shows. Now we all know 
that there is hesitancy among minority community for things that are perceived as potentially new. And with good reason, I mean, you go back and look at studies that were done, uh, experimenting, frankly, on minority communities with and without treatments back in the 30s and 40s, and so, and even into the 1950s. So there is some distrust of the medical community that we will have to work hard uh, to make sure that people understand that, that, that the vaccination is really a gift and it's important and the data look good and be supportive of that and talk this out with those communities. So I think there is some hesitancy in those communities. And then frankly, some of it's related to the pandemic where if you look at who's been um, among the worst in terms of mortality and, and our communities in minority areas and cities. And so where um, the impression has been um, that uh, perhaps there was lack of attention uh, to making sure that these individuals would not be so hit by the pandemic. So you've got that double whammy and we need to address it. They're, they're, they're real. It's not something that's made up. They're real and we're gonna need to address it. Now, um, I do think particularly in Hartford and Connecticut Children's has spent a lot of time working with our community, um, particularly in our AIDS program and other programs. We know what we need to do. We're just gonna have to roll up our sleeves and get out in those communities and do what needs to get done to build that trust and to immunize as many vulnerable as we can. Thank you, John. Such an important point. Uh, uh, Lisa from Lauren Ervolta, great presentation. Lisa, I have found students who have faced a transition have also been having a harder time, such as transitioning into middle school this past September. Can you speak to any concerns about those school transitions? Yeah, again, I think the transition if schools did open in September was made much more difficult because kids were out of school six months. It's really remarkable, right? We always worried about summer because it was two months um, and the transition back to school after two months. And this was six months, March, April, May, June, July, August. I mean, it, when you think about it, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. And yes, Lauren, if, if in addition to that duration of time, you also were shifting schools, brand new school, and you haven't been at school for six months, that's a, a, a remarkable burden. And if you want it, you know, Nothing's better for newness than to just have consistency. And if you were only going back two days a week to this brand new place, or it was a week on week off, then it just sort of, you know, it just added to the transition. Um, so this, this is all, you know, in obtaining your history of the child in front of you, these are all the details you kind of want to know because you want to know, you know, what was the uniqueness of the experience for this particular kid in their particular town. Thank you. Uh, John, with the spread of B117 uh, in Connecticut, what is your opinion regarding the move to a five-day a week in-person schedule in many school districts uh, because of the increase in fictivity of these variants? Is there any difference, any different advice you would give to help keep the children and teachers safe, like distancing, double masking, et cetera. Comments I, think, I think the um, precautions that are recommended, I don't know where the state and the CDC are gonna to need to come together and what we finally roll out. But I think if appropriate precautions are done um, uh, in the community, we may need to up our game with masks, that's true. Um, and in addition, if we immunize our vulnerable um, by the fall, the risk I think is gonna be low. And, and I, I think going back to school, if the elderly are immunized, where we have the highest mortality, teachers hopefully would be immunized. People are wearing masks and distancing and we have low community spread. I think we're in a good place for that. But these, that's gonna take work. 
And we're going to need to watch and make sure this variant doesn't take off. And we need to maintain our public health measures in the meantime. And so our immunization rates, you know, cover herd immunity. But if we had herd immunity come September um, and 70% of Connecticut's immunized, I'm very confident we would do quite well opening school. So I'm, I'm okay with it, Juan, but we have some work to do to get there. Uh, Lisa, when there's a large trauma event in schools, and we've unfortunately we've had many of those throughout the country and here in Connecticut, uh, you bring grief counselors uh, that, that come into the schools, support the kids and school communities. Uh, you think we'll have a more broad approach in addressing the trauma kids have been through? Uh, my own child school district thinks they're addressing it, but I do not, do not see it happening. So any, any commentary of how we can approach this? Interesting. Um, I, I wonder how we would be able to vector that. Um, uh, uh, and what kind of intervention would sort of will, will be the most effective because in the end, this has been a somewhat unique experience. Um, you know, in psychiatry, we say that behavioral and psychiatric outcomes are G times E, you know, genetics, genetic vulnerabilities, and then environment. And so, you know, what I'm finding is that each kid's story is, is somewhat unique in terms of, you know, uh, what, what the experience at at home is, what their experience of not being in school versus being in school. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's something to think about. I don't have a great answer for that. That's a great question. Thank you. Uh, John, uh, is there any evidence emerging on children with long haul COVID in terms of risk factors to develop these symptoms as well as effective treatments? You know, it's a great question. And um, the, the NIH is looking into that and giving out some grants to try to understand that. I don't think we know yet. You saw my C-reactive protein slide. That's predicting severity getting it into the ICU, but we don't know what would predict long-term negative outcomes in children and their grants being given to do that. And I know Dr. Salazar and team are applying for one of those grants. So we hope to help generate some of those data to understand that better in the coming months. But right now we don't know. Great, um, let me just keep going. Uh, just a comment, I think for, for both and all of us, uh, it, in, in the, I think Nilda's, Nilda Fernandez is answering a couple of the questions and is systemic racism impacted the most vulnerable populations. And I, and I think this, is, this disease has brought out inequities in our population, which, uh, which we need to address. Uh, so Nilda, I, I do agree with, with, your, with your comment, uh, absolutely. Um, you know what, I, I want to add into that. One yeah, of the right. reasons I show that slide, it's an uncomfortable slide to see, right? I don't like to see those data. But we have to see those data because we have to solve those problems, right? And that way we get through the pandemic and we save lives and everyone benefits. So those slides are uncomfortable, but I think we need to understand where we can do better. And that's why you show them, right? So, Yeah. Lisa, any suggestions for helping kids who have learning problems uh, find areas of competency when so many areas like sports, music are not available to them right now? Magic yeah, bullets yeah. here. It is. You're absolutely right. It's, it's, that's why it was very exciting actually to hear Juan, you say that, that sports and things are opening up again. That is what's missing, right? And um, I'll have to put that in the slide set also. So not only were kids losing their structure um, and their consistency, but also these other areas of competency. I saw another girl yesterday um, who's, who, who's musical theater. That's her love, that's her passion. That was kind of why she went to school um, and lost that. So I, I, I think encouraging um, you know, th that's the 
governor to open things back up as soon as possible um, is really the answer. Because what we don't want, obviously, is for kids' sense of competency to be coming from video games and, you know, and screenshots. Um, you know, the only other thing I can think about is uh, if families have time and availability is teaching new competencies, you know, cooking together. So many, so many families are learning to cook and cook together and, you know, just anything that can bring the family together and get them out of this role of, you know, uh, policing, I think is really, uh, would be really helpful. Um, I had a really quick question for John and Juan, just talking about field studies is because Connecticut has been back in school, really for the most part this year in different ways, has there been any study looking at teachers and their risk? Because it's, you know, there's been this natural study and uh, so many teachers really had lots of proximity to students during- I mean, the transmission in schools has been looked at and it's lower than what you see in the community. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I would say, yes, there's some data suggesting it's lower risk than the community want. I don't know if you want to add to that. But. Yeah, I'll answer it in a different way, Lisa. Is, you know, we uh, at Connecticut Children's, we have been open through the pandemic, you know, and we've had, uh, I mean, we have 2,800 team members. The ones that are coming into our clinics and our hospital, probably on a daily basis, we have 2,000 people that go in and out through our buildings. And, and by following proper masking, uh, hand washing, social distancing, uh, and screening, we have not had a problem of community spread within our hospital. And, uh, and so that, that, you know, those similar issues can be spread to schools in the sense that, you know, if, if the rules are followed, that's not the place where you get infected, it's really in the community. And, uh, and that's something that in combination with vaccines, in combination with, you know, proper masking, social distancing as much as you can, uh, I think you can keep the transmission rate very low. And, and my hope is that springtime and then certainly by fall, we can get back to a great degree of normality. And so that, that's what I would say. And now, Lisa, I have a question, a very interesting question, and it's, um, it's about PTSD. So uh, move us forward uh, three to six months, you know, for this entire Connecticut community of, of everyone, including the kids. And uh, uh, how do we recover from this? How do we get back to a sense of normality with, with so many of us are, are so stressed out and, and, and certainly our young people are? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually was thinking about that the other day because I was thinking about 9-11 um, when so many of us uh, were, were incredibly traumatized and wondered, you know, uh, how we'd feel the next day and the next day and the next day. And, and it took a while, um, but, you know, once we got back to our lives and they looked the same again, um, you know, things get better. So uh, mostly the recovery from trauma is time and this sort of consistent experience that, okay, uh, actually life is starting to look like it always had. Um, that's the case for children, and that's certainly the case for adults as well. In fact, the studies following 9-11 were that as soon as kids could get back to their life routine, the better they did, um, which is, again, why the school portion is so incredibly important. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take time. I mean, who would have ever thought that seeing friends would be a trauma? It's a, it's a, it's a remarkable, or seeing family, or, or trying to get together with family. Oh, my gosh, should we be doing this? Um, but uh, as with a lot of things in life, time. Um, I think when we can all get back and, and that doesn't feel so scary again, that, that we can recover. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. And uh, it's, it's nine o'clock. I'm going to ask uh, each one of you to make a final comment for today with 
and I want it to be a positive comment uh, just to end the week. So John, we'll start with you and then we'll finish with Lisa. Sure. I mean, you know, the race is on and we're winning right now in Connecticut and other, some other parts of the country as well. We just need to keep our nose to the grindstone and, um, and, and also focus on those who are less fortunate so that we can get everyone immunized and figure out how we're going to do that. But um, I'm very optimistic um, that we're going to conquer this. And um, in addition, uh, I'm also inspired, quite frankly, by a lot of the people around me. Lisa mentioned the teachers going to the supermarket, the person bringing out food, putting in my car. It just There's thousands and thousands of people who have just rolled up their sleeves and, and are going to get through this and have really helped us get through this. So thank you um, to everyone out there who's every day doing that. Yeah, John, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the positive thing for me is that the schools have been remarkable. Um, they're getting such a national bad rap, you know, teachers, teachers unions, blah, 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 blah. And it's being stated like it's sort of everywhere. We need to make our teachers heroes, absolute heroes. They've done a remarkable job. I've seen it in person. All my consults have really been in person at the school. Um, and it's been the most remarkable experience to see them. Uh, to see the work and to see that even in the midst of all of this, they are still caring about IEPs and special ed and, and kids who are struggling. So that's that's what I'd leave with. And, and Juan, one final comment. The, there's a humor, there's a comedian among our attendees who said, if we're stressed out, we should go to Cancun. So uh, <laughs> well, Wait, you, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So uh, all right, thank you, John. <laughs> and I'll laugh today, okay? Yeah. Uh, so thank you both. And, uh, and, and thank you uh, for what you do. And, and Lisa, you and all our behavioral health, mental health providers also for your leadership and, and your heroism during this time. It's been, uh, it's been very tough. I know you've been all very busy and, it, and we had about 270 people join today, which tells you how important this topic is. Mm -hmm. So hang in there. We will make it through, you know, believe in yourselves, believe in humanity. Uh, and and we'll, we'll we'll have better days coming uh, moving forward. Take care. Enjoy the weekend. Bye, everybody. And we'll see you again next week. Bye bye.